chapter 8, verses 7 through 15 is our text. 2 Kings chapter 8, beginning at verse 7 through verse 15. This is God's holy word. And Elisha came to Damascus. Now Ben-Hadad, a king of Aram, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. The king said to Hazael, Take a gift in your hand and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Will I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a gift in his hand. Even every good, every kind of, of good thing of Damascus, 40 camels loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, has sent me to you, saying, Will I recover from this sickness? Then Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You will surely recover. But the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. He fixed his gaze steadily on him until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? And he answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and their little ones you will dash in pieces and their women with child you will rip up. And Hazael said, But what is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. So he departed from Elisha and returned to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me, that you would surely recover. On the following day, he took the cover and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died. And Hazael became king in his place. The reading of Holy Scripture. Be seated, please, as we pray together for the preaching and hearing of God's word. O Lord God of heaven and earth, we believe that you have breathed out every portion of your word. We believe that by your spirit you have given us this word, a word that is sure, a word that is designed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And we ask, O God, that by your Spirit you would do mighty things through your word tonight, that you would send the Spirit into our midst with great power, 
to enlighten our minds in the knowledge of your word and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The expression, the word of Jehovah, occurs 48 times in First and Second Kings. 23 of these occurrences, close to half, are in the Elijah and Elisha narratives. The Elisha, Elijah and Elisha narratives underscore the preeminence of God's word. One of the focal points in these narratives is the importance of seeking Jehovah's word through his appointed prophets. On two occasions, Israel's king asks Judah's king to go to battle with him against an Israeli enemy, and both times, Israel's king has to be reminded by Judah's king to inquire of the word of the Lord. In the first instance, Ahab asked Jehoshaphat, uh, Jehoshaphat rather, to go to war with him against Aram. And Jehoshaphat replies, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But then he says to, uh, to Ahab, please inquire first of the word of Jehovah. 1 Kings 22, verse 5. Ahab inquired, all right, he inquired of his 400 Baal-infected prophets, and Jehoshaphat protested, Is there not yet a prophet of Jehovah here that we may inquire of him? Chapter 22 and, and verse 7 there in 1 Kings. In the second instance, Ahab's son, Jehoram, asks the same king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, to fight with him against Moab. The two kings go off together in their campaign. The king of Edom joins them, but they soon found themselves in a jam. There was no water for the army or for the cattle that were with them. 2 Kings 3, verse 9. Jehoram falls into despair, saying, Jehovah has called these three kings to give them into the hand of, of Moab. Chapter 3, verse 10. And it's once again Jehoshaphat, albeit not as soon as he should have, uh, but nevertheless insisting that they seek a word from the Lord. Chapter 3 and verse 11 there in 2 Kings 3. Is there not a prophet of Jehovah here? that we may inquire of him. In stark contrast to Israel's kings, Ben-Hadad, a foreign king, inquires of Jehovah's word here in the opening verses of our text. Our text reminds us that Jehovah's preeminent word must be sought at all costs and its rejection comes at a great cost. Jehovah's word must be sought at all costs and its rejection comes at a great cost. 
look at three things together in our text. In the first place, the imperative of seeking Jehovah's word. Secondly, the certain fulfillment of Jehovah's word. And thirdly, the costliness of rejecting Jehovah's word. In the first place, the imperative of seeking Jehovah's word. We see this in the first several verses of our text, verses 7 to 9. Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, is seriously ill, and upon receiving the news that Elisha is in Damascus, he sends Hazael with an extravagant gift, 40 camels load, uh, loads of wares, uh, to inquire whether he'll recover from uh, this illness. This passage raises a number of questions in the mind of the reader. First, what in the world is Elisha doing in Damascus? Israel and Damascus, uh, uh, Israel and, and Aram are enemies. And it's only just recently in our exposition of Second Kings that we considered the lengthy account of the Aramean siege of Samaria, Israel's royal city, in chapter 6, verse 24, through chapter 7, verse 20. And not only this, but Elisha and Ben-Hadad have a history. Prior to the siege, the king had sent his servants in an attempt to capture Elisha, uh, after he discovered that the, the prophet was receiving military, a divine military intelligence and communicating this to the king of Israel. When Ben-Hadad was uh, planning raids into Israeli territories. Now, however, Ben-Hadad seems more concerned to get divine prognosis for the future than to get revenge for the past. And notice his, his approach to Elisha. It's, it's quite respectful, uh, like a son to his father. Evident through this address through his emissary Hazael, verse 9, your son Ben-Hadad has sent me to you saying, will I recover from this sickness? Second question is, who is this Hazael? Uh, is he simply a messenger of the king? Is, is he uh, a, the commander of uh, the Aramean army? Is he an officer, uh, some other officer in the court of the king? We don't know. Perhaps you remember the bare mention of his name in 1 Kings 19. We'll get to that uh, in a, a moment. But we don't know who this man is. We're not told about his function in, in uh, the royal house. And whatever the question, the answers may be these, to these questions, what's in focus here in verses 7 to 9 is the irony of Ben-Hadad's inquiry, which recalls the opening verses of 2 Kings. When Ahaziah, the first of Ahab's sons, to succeed him on uh, Israel's throne as king, fell through the lattice of his upper chamber and became ill. 
He sent messengers to Beelzebub, the lord of the flies, the god of Ekron, to inquire whether he would uh, recover from his sickness. 2 Kings 1, verses 1 and 2. The irony of our text is quite evident in the fact that a foreign king knows well enough to inquire of the word of the Lord through God's prophet, while the king of uh, uh, Israel inquires of a pagan god in a foreign land. Does this not set before us the imperative of seeking Jehovah's word, the vital importance of inquiring of Jehovah, looking to him and his word for direction. Pagans look for, directions through, uh, for direction through false gods, through psychics, through astrology, through self-help books, secular therapy, or psychology. Believers must go to Jehovah, the only true God of heaven and earth. Scripture doesn't tell me to look deep within myself to find a direction, nor does it tell me to look primarily to others. Jeremiah 10.23 says, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself. Nor is it a man who walks to direct, uh, rather, nor is it in a man who walks uh, to direct his steps. That is, nor is it in uh, a human to direct his steps. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't seek godly counsel. Of course, uh, the Bible uh, encourages this. It, it commends this to us. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. When you do seek counsel, your first stop ought to be in the church. Sadly, uh, many believers, because they're ashamed of the circumstances into which they've fallen, of the sin into which they have fallen, uh, seek counsel outside the church. Seek a word from the Lord uh, outside of the church. But your pastor, your elders know you best, and they are the ones who are responsible for your souls. So seek counsel. Seek of the word of the Lord from pastors and, and elders in the church. If you do seek counsel outside the church, you must be sure that the one who will counsel you or your children will do so from God's word and not simply spout off the latest psychobabble. Recently counseled a young man who expressed, uh, expressed frustration uh, with the one from whom he had recently received 
counsel, a man who called himself a Christian counselor, but who never once in the time of that counseling referred to the Bible. And this young man said, I'm not afraid to have someone point out my sins to me. I'm more than willing to be brought to account for my sins. But I want a counselor who will do so with an open Bible in his hand. You young people, I've said this to you before, but I'll say it to you again. Don't seek counsel from your peers. You're far more likely to hear what you want to hear from your peers. But God hasn't invested your peers with godly wisdom to counsel you. You seek counsel from, again, from your pastor, from your elders, for mature, godly Christians, uh, members of the church where you have your membership. Don't seek counsel from one another. The imperative of seeking Jehovah's word, the, the imperative of inquiring of the Lord and his word for direction in our lives. That's the first thing that we see in our text. Secondly, the certain fulfillment of Jehovah's word. The mention of Hazael's name in our text transports us back to 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 15 to 18, where Jehovah commands Elijah to go to Damascus to anoint Hazael as king over Aram, Jehu as king over Israel, and Elisha as prophet in his place. The next thing we read in 1 Kings 19 is of Elijah's anointing of Elisha, but we don't find anything in what follows about the anointing of Hazael. And it's not even Elijah who anoints Jehu. It's not even Elisha who anoints Jehu. It's one of the sons of the prophets who anoints him. 2 Kings 9, verses 1 to 10. Hazael and Jehu are instruments that Jehovah would use to sweep away Ahab's house, fulfilling the prophecy uh, that the the Lord gave through uh, Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 21 and 22. Behold, I will bring evil upon you, and I'll utterly sweep you away, speaking to Ahab here. I will cut off from Ahab's, from Ahab every male and both bond and free in Israel, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, and because you have made Israel sin. In spite of that prophecy. 
we've seen Ahab's apostate sons, Ahaziah and Jehoram, continue the legacy of Ahab's house. But now, in our text, Jehovah's judgment on Ahab, long delayed, is being set into motion by the events of chapter 8, verses 7 to 15. Jehovah's word to Elijah in 1 Kings 19 and Elijah's prophecy of 1 Kings 21 are beginning to be fulfilled. Now, Elisha's answer to Ben-Hadad's inquiry in verse 10 is, is puzzling. It may not seem that way in, in your translations because they all read the same. They all say something to the effect, go, say to him, you will surely recover. But it's possible to read the Hebrew in such a way as to transform Elisha's message to Ben-Hadad into its opposite. You will certainly not recover. And that's due, uh, the ambiguity here is due to a variant in uh, the Hebrew manuscripts calling into question whether this is a negative, meaning no or not, or a word with a slightly different spelling, meaning to him, which uh, the, the uh, Masoretic scribes, uh, uh, Hebrew scribes, uh, who gave us the Hebrew Bible as we know it, want us to, to read here, and which our translations therefore follow. On this reading, Elisha seems to be saying that Ben-Hadad would recover if left to the natural process of healing, but that he wasn't going to be left to recover naturally, that he knew that Hazael would assassinate Ben-Hadad. The Lord had shown him that Ben-Hadad was going to die and that Hazael was going to be king over Aram, verse 13. In any case, we have here God's faithfulness to carry out his purposes in fulfillment of his word. It had been a long time since the Lord had commanded Elijah to anoint Hazael in 1 Kings 19.15. But even though a considerable amount of time has passed since that command had been given, God's word had been fulfilled. And this passage teaches us not to interpret God's delays to mean that his promises or threats have failed. You see here the certain fulfillment of God's word. That's the second point of our text. Thirdly, the costliness of rejecting Jehovah's word. It appears that uh, the writer intends us uh, to see Elisha now setting apart Hazael as Jehovah's instrument to bring judgment on Israel. It's not the usual uh, means of anointing, but nevertheless, uh, 
that appears essentially what, what he does here. In chapters 2 to 7, Elijah, Elisha rather, had, had served primarily as a minister of grace. Now he serves as a minister of God's judgment. Israel has been sinning away her day of grace. Israel has failed to listen to the voice of the prophets. Time after time, the northern kingdom has rejected God's word. Time uh, after time, the, the northern kingdom has rejected God's, uh, Jehovah's gracious overtures to her. And now she, is, she has sinned away uh, her day of grace. The emphasis in this section, then, is in verses 11 and 12. Uh, uh, Elisha seems to stare down Hazael. The, the Hebrew here is, is difficult. But he seems to, to stare him down and then breaks down and weeps. And that disturbs Hazael, and he asks the reason for his tears, verse 12. Because I know, Elisha replies, the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel, their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with a sword, and their little ones you will dash in pieces, and their women with child you will rip up. Hazael is puzzled by this reply. He can't understand how he'd be in a position to accomplish such a thing. Verse 13, And then Elisha tells him what Jehovah has shown him. He will be king over Israel. And the last thing we read in our text is that Hazael moves things along in this regard by apparently taking a wet cloth and smothering uh, the king of Aram. Israel's judgment is set into motion. Jehovah had solemnly warned the people of Israel about the calamities that would come upon them if they chased after idols. One of these calamities was defeat at the hands of their enemies. Deuteronomy 28, verse 14, the northern kingdom of Israel had spurned the clear word uh, from Jehovah and had gone headlong after Baal. Furthermore, they had refused to heed Jehovah's prophets sent to them time and time again. They refused to make a decisive break with their idols under uh, Elijah's ministry. And, and they continue to do so under Elisha's ministry as well. And the Lord has been extremely patient with them. But now he was ready to hand them over to judgment. The description of Elisha in Damascus is both startling and tragic. There Israel's prophet essentially anoints a foreign king. And here God declares war on Israel, his own people. And it was all because of their stubborn refusal to heed Jehovah's word. 
It's a costly thing to reject the word of the Lord. We're dealing here with a principle that's applicable both to believers and to unbelievers. Believers are called to live in obedience to the Lord, to carefully heed Jehovah's word, just as uh, the Israelites of old were to do so. And those who fail to do so invite Jehovah's chastisement into their lives. Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11, that well-familiar passage on uh, the Lord's disciplines, a discipline upon uh, His true sons, reminds us that the Lord can and the Lord will do this. Unbelievers are called to repent and to look to Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, to trust in in his finished work for deliverance from their sins. And God has solemnly declared that to spurn this message is to suffer the calamity of eternal destruction in hell. Passing of time may seem to make that warning unlikely and implausible, But God's word will certainly be fulfilled, and it's costly to reject his word. Two things by way of final application here. In the first first place, you can be confident that the Lord is attentive to those who seek him, to look to him for direction, to look to his word. And to seek to mark their way by his word, to uh, pattern their way after his word. You can be sure, you can be confident that God will honor your seeking of him and that he will answer you when you call upon him. He promises that, for example, in Jeremiah 29, verses 11 to 13. This is God's word to the captives in Babylon. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Again, the imperative of seeking the Lord in his word day after day, week after week. Every time you open your Bible, you ought to be looking or the Lord's direction. What does this passage reveal to me about, uh, what, what knowledge does this impart to me about God or, or his Christ or his Holy Spirit? Uh, where are the sins that I ought to be avoiding? 
Uh, Where are the promises that God gives to me? What threats does God make to his people here? If we fail to, if, if his people fail to keep his word every day, every week, every month, every time you sit under the preaching of God's word, that's what you ought to be seeking. Your mouth ought to be opened wide. As a deer pants for the water brook, so your soul ought to thirst for the living God and say, when will I come to him? When do you come to him? You come to him in worship, in whatever setting that might be, whether it's in private, in family, or here in corporate worship. And God speaks his marvelous word. He speaks the word of Christ through the preaching of his word. And you can be sure that he's attentive when you seek him, and you can be sure that you will find him because he promises you. But then, secondly, you can be sure that God always fulfills his word, whether in the form of its promises or threats. God's word always comes to pass. There's never any variance here. There might be variance in the Hebrew Bible, in in, uh, the reading of the Bible. There there might be variances in uh, the the Greek text, but there aren't any variances in in God's will. uh, In his word, it will always be fulfilled. It will always come to pass. Joshua 21.45 is is something of a postscript of Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan and the apportionment of the land to the twelve tribes. After the narrator records the details of all the Canaanite kings that Israel defeated and provides a list of them all in chapter 12, in all 31 kings, verse 24 says, and after those long chapters that are uh, hard to wade through in the course of your yearly Bible reading uh, that define the boundaries of the territories of all the tribes of Israel and all of their cities, we're given this succinct statement in Joshua 24, verse 15. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. That's how you need to view Jehovah's preeminent word. Whatever God promises, that will be. Because God's word is always true. Whatever God threatens, that threat will come to pass. Because God's word is always sure. That's wondrously true of God's promises. And we love to hear that. That all God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. But it's fearfully true as well of every threat that God makes 
whether to the unbeliever or to his own dear children. Amen. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we look now to you and your word. We praise you for that word, O Lord. And we ask, O Father, that you would help us to see your your word for what it is. That we would recognize its preeminence in our lives as Christians. That we would seek you diligently. That we would heed the imperative. That we would see the vital importance of seeking you, especially in the revelation that you've given us in the 66 books of the Bible. We pray, O God, that you would help us to see, help us to have this, this view of your word. Help us to understand its importance And therefore, to be diligent in looking for direction in your holy word. And we pray, O Lord, that this might be true of, that that this view uh, might uh, encompass both your promises and your threats. We love your promises, O Lord. We love to read of them. We love to plead them before your throne. But your word teaches us clearly that we ought to fear your threats when we reject your word, when we ignore your commandments, when we disagree with your precepts when we try to wrangle our way out of the things that you have, uh, the requirements that you have set on us as your people. Lord, give us a godly fear of your word. Teach us to love even those threats. Teach us to love even the discipline that comes upon us when we reject your word. And when we seek, uh, rather when we stray from, uh, from the path of, of righteousness, the way that you have set before us, the way that you've uh, taught us to walk, uh, Lord, correct us and bring us back into conformity to your preeminent word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.